you have a Bible with you today, we're looking at um, John chapter 3, verses 10, or verses 9 through 21. I say to you, hear the word of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the Son, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray uh, for those who have not yet to have experienced new birth, that you would do that even this morning. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, if it's your first time here, we are in the midst of a series on the book of John. We started at chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just working our way through, and we're obviously on chapter 3 today. And I thought I would open with this question. I'd ask you, do you know who this man is? Are you familiar with him? His name is Rockin'. <laughs> Roland Stewart is his name. One of the verses we're looking at this morning is John 3.16, and it's arguably the most well-known verse in the, wor- in the world. If you, People have seen it. I don't know if they know the words, but they've seen John 3.16, and the reason they've seen it is because of this man, Roland Stewart. So he became a Christian in 1972. He was an actor, and he thought, man, he was called to like just share the gospel throughout the world, and for whatever reason, he had the idea that if he wore this crazy wig and wrote John 3.16 on a big piece of poster board and got in front of as many cameras as he could, that, the, the, that would basically usher in the rapture, that ultimately Jesus would come back because so many people would become Christians. I can remember being a young child watching football games with my parents and seeing this joker in the background. He would, be, he would get behind the field goal, and he would hold this thing up. He was so famous that even the Simpsons did a, a thing on him, right? That was him. He would, he would hold up John 3.16, John 3.16. Someone asked him at one point, why do you write John 3.16 on this poster board and not something else? And according to him, he said, because I think it's the best summary of the gospel in the whole Bible. Now, interestingly enough, I don't know if I would agree with that. On one hand, right, there's other things like we talked about even this morning, right? God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we're sinners, Christ died for us. That's a little bit more clear. 
However, if you, if you look at John 3.16 in context, I think it is pretty clear. But we must look at it in context, right? You have to look at it, what comes before and what comes after. And in that sense, it is a pretty good, clear presentation of what Christians understand to be the gospel. Now, before we go on, I thought it would just be a great bit of trivia for you to know that Roland Stewart is actually, at this moment, serving three life, consecutive life sentences in prison. <laughs> He was so zealous for the gospel that he began to like do crazy things. He kidnapped a maid at some point, and he tried to take hostages at an airport to get attention because he thought Jesus was coming back, and this was in 1992. Um, and apparently, you've got to give him credit, he's still pretty zealous because he's been refused parole every year since 2011. So, go rolling. <laughs> We're looking at three things this morning. We're going to look at the centrality of the cross we're going to look at the motivation of God, and we're going to look at the mission of Jesus. Right? The centrality of the cross, the motivation of God, and the mission of Jesus. So let's look first at the centrality of the cross. Picking up at verse 10, right? Jesus is in, the, in this conversation with Nicodemus. In verse 9, Nicodemus says, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. If you remember the background, Jesus cleared the temple in John chapter 2, and then between John chapter 2 and chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, it says that many people believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in all men. Right? He, it, 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 the implication is, is that humanity was, was wicked, or they weren't worthy for, for Jesus to trust himself because he knew what was in them. And we talked about the fact that he could either have known that supernaturally or he could have just read his Bible. That the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that no one, there's no one who has not sinned. There's no one who is not um, depraved, as theologians would say. And so you would, if you wanted to argue that, you'd say, what about someone who's like good? Well, the very next thing, chapter 2 ends with that. And then it says, for example, Nicodemus. And so it goes from saying all humanity is this, and then it says, for example, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was, was the best that Israel had to offer. If you remember, it says Nicodemus was a ruler, he was a Pharisee, and he was a ruler of the Pharisees. Ultimately, Jesus calls him the teacher in Israel. So we know this about Nicodemus, that he was a Pharisee, which meant he had mastered religion. He had probably memorized great swaths of the, the Old Testament. We also know that he had mastered education because he was a ruler in Israel. He was the teacher in Israel. And as a ruler of Israel, we know that he had mastered politics. Because to be a ruler in Israel, a ruler in the synagogue, was basically the equivalent of what a Supreme Court justice is for us. So he would have known the law. He would have been asked to adjudicate the law. He would have been gone to for advice. So Nicodemus, if anyone was good enough, if anyone had gone through the, through the motions, if anyone had jumped the hoops in order to be good enough according to what Israel thought you needed to be saved, it was Nicodemus. And remember, he goes to Jesus and says, we know you're a teacher sent by God because of the things you do. And Jesus sort of interrupts him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again or born from above. And he pushes back, and he says, how can you come out of your mother's womb a second time? And Jesus gives this allusion to Ezekiel chapter 36. 
right, that you have to be born of, the, of water and born of the Spirit. Remember in Ezekiel, God said of Israel, he said, I will wash you clean with water and I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And Nicodemus still didn't get it. That's where we pick up today. Because Nicodemus is struggling with that, but he's not struggling, I don't think he's struggling with it like, there, there are basically two kinds of skeptics, or two kinds of, of atheists even, there's, but there's one kind of skeptic who's actually seeking for truth. Right? They're, they're skeptical, but they're asking questions because they genuinely want to know where they're going. There's another kind of skeptic that's trying to avoid the truth. They're just throwing up objections. They're throwing spaghetti on the wall to keep you busy so you, you're busy answering crazy questions so they never have to deal with the real truth. I think Nicodemus is sort of that kind of skeptic. Because the next thing that it, he says in verse 10, how can these things be or how can this happen? And I don't think the problem here with Nicodemus is intellectual. In fact, Jesus says a little bit in a verse or two that it's not an intellectual problem. It's a problem of incredulity, right? Nicodemus has spent his whole life working to please God, or his whole life working to be obedient, his whole life to sort of build this reputation that any person would say, if he's going to heaven, if anyone's going to heaven, that guy's going to heaven. And Jesus says, none of that counts. It doesn't matter. Nicodemus, you could be the very best person in the world, you could be the very worst person in the world, but unless you're born again, you cannot see the, the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, how can this happen? And Jesus answers him in verse 10. He says, how can you not understand, basically? Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And he says, verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So what is Jesus saying here? Number one, he, I think we talked about last week, he's like, Nicodemus, if you really are the, the teacher of Israel, if you really understood the Old Testament, you would understand that the Old Testament, there's no, I'm not saying anything new to you here. Remember later on in John chapter 8, Jesus gets in an argument with Pharisees, and he tells them, he says, you know, at the end, end of time, I'm not going to be the one to stand and condemn you. Moses is going to be the one who stands and condemn you, because Moses was writing about me. That's a bold claim, but Jesus expected, Nicodemus, nothing I'm telling you here is, is new stuff. You should understand this, being the teacher of Israel. Your problem, again, isn't your intellect. Your problem is that you do not receive our testimony. You're not willing to believe the testimony that's actually given to you. Now, a lot of people stumble over this. What does Jesus mean when he says, our testimony? Well, it's either, his, either the testimony of Jesus and God the Father, like because God the Father has sent him, or I think it's actually the testimony of the prophets that have come before him. Nicodemus, you're supposed to, you say you understand the Bible, but the fact is you're unwilling to obey the Bible. You're unwilling to obey the testimony of the Bible, and the testimony of the Bible is this, that it's all pointing toward me. So your problem isn't one of intellect. Your problem in some sense is your heart. You're just not willing to take it. You're not willing to receive it. Because if you received it, you would receive me. And he goes on. He says, I have told you earthly things, of verse 12, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What does Jesus mean by earthly things? He probably means basic things. Like Nicodemus, if you can't understand the basics, like you have to be born again, then how can I teach you like the more advanced stuff? 
You see, there's a doctrine that Presbyterians teach. It's called the perspicuity of Scripture. It's important for you to get. If you ever take the discovery class, I talk about this. What is the perspicuity of Scripture? Like, I could spell it for you. It's P-E-R-S, P-I-C-U-I-T-Y. Perspicuity of Scripture. And it means the clarity or the see-throughableness of Scripture. And what we mean by that is that when you read the Bible, a lot of things are confusing. No one, no one denies that. There are a lot of things that, that are hard to make sense of in the Bible, but there are some things that are abundantly clear. That's what Jesus is talking about by earthly things, I think here. Basic things. What, are, what things are amazing or clear, no matter how complicated some parts of the Bible are, well, what's abundantly clear is that humanity is broken, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that all of us struggle with sin, shame, guilt, and that God sent His Son Jesus to deal with our sin, shame, and our guilt. If you don't understand anything else, those things are clear. And what's also clear is because of man's wickedness, because of man's sin, that God has to initiate, that He has to open our eyes, that, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He has to make us alive. Those are sort of basic things. And Nicodemus, if you don't get that, how are we supposed to go on to all this other stuff that you're asking about? So Jesus continues in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who descended from the Son of Heaven. That's probably a statement about Moses. In in other words, remember that Moses ascended into the mountain. I think what's more important is 14 and 15. He says, "And, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's saying you do not receive our testimony, if I'm right, right, the, the prophets, the whole Bible that came before you. And he could have said at this point, he said, Nicodemus, here's the thing. Here's, here's the bottom line. That unless I am crucified, you can't be saved. Unless I am crucified, you cannot be reconciled to God. Jesus could have come out and said that. I think he wants to make him work for it. And, and I think he's making a point about him not receiving the testimony that has been given before about him. He could have said just you know, at the end of the day, you know what, I have to be crucified because every other time in the book of John where lifted up is used four times, if I remember correctly, it's with reference to Jesus' crucifixion. So when Jesus says here, just, just as the serpent must be lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's from Numbers chapter 21. Let me read that to you real quickly. Starting at verse 4. It says, From Mount Hor they set out from the by the way to the Red Sea to go to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out into Egypt, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may be taken that he may take the serpents away from us. So, that, so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole that everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Moses, God said, basically take the, the symbol of their affliction and lift it up before them, and if, to the extent that they, they look to that symbol of affliction, they will be healed. And so what God did is he used this serpent, lifted up on a pole, as the means to bring physical healing to people in Israel who had been bitten by these snakes. In some sense, Jesus is saying it, so it shouldn't surprise you that if, if God uses the means of a snake lifted on a pole to heal people physically, that he would li- not use the Son of Man lifted on a pole in order to heal you spiritually. That w- what's key here is the lifting up. That the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be crucified. What's key to your healing is the crucifixion of the Son of Man. That basically those who turn to Him would experience new birth just as those in Israel experienced new physical life. They were healed. Do you want to be healed from your sins? Do you want to be healed from your guilt? Do you want to be healed from your shame? There's one thing, one place to go, one thing to look at, and that's the cross of Jesus. And it's not magic, right? The problem with the fiery serpent is ultimately Hezekiah, if you remember, had to destroy it because people began to treat it sort of as a talisman or a lucky charm, right? They would just go like, oh, if I can just go look at that thing, maybe I'll have good luck. It had to be destroyed because it, it, the, the snake, the serpent put upon the, lifted up on the pole was pointing to something bigger and something better. It was pointing to the cross of Jesus because what happens at the cross of Jesus is this, the our affliction is placed upon the cross. Remember that 2 Corinthians says that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become what? The righteousness of God in him. That Jesus didn't just go to the cross and bear our sin. Jesus went to the cross and became our sin so that you and I might become something different, so that you and I might become new people. You see, the the cross is central to not just the New Testament and not just the Gospel of John, but the cross is central to the whole Bible. The whole Bible is taking us to the one place where we can be healed. It's the cross. And you you might say, well, I don't know about that. You know, and be a skeptic. That's fine. But if you're going to be a skeptic, be a skeptic who's searching for the truth, not a skeptic who's trying to avoid the truth. And when you when you read this passage. What makes John 3.16 so important is John 3.14 and 15 because it says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You could stop right there. You really don't need 3.16 to understand what's going on. Jesus says if you want eternal life, look to the cross. And eternal life, you've heard me say this before a million times probably, is not just life in heaven everlasting after we get through with this miserable time on earth. The whole point there is it's the, it's the word age to come is actually literally what it says. And when Jesus says those who believe in me will have the life of the age to come now. That we have substantial healing from our shame now, from our guilt now. We begin to experience the joy of the age to come now. Do you want that? Because if you want it, it's available to you. It's available to all of us. You've heard also me say, we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves because how often do we forget that? How often do we forget that our shame has been taken, our guilt has been taken, our, the curse has been lifted, all because of one thing, the cross of Jesus. Now, why, why did the cross of Jesus happen? 
Did the cross of Jesus happen because you and I were so good? Absolutely not. It has to do with the motivation of God. What is the motivation of God? What in the world would motivate God to actually let His Son be crucified on behalf of sinful people? And and the answer is simple. It's His love. So we look at the motivation of God. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So what is the motivation of, of God and the crucifixion of his son, it was simply his love. And what's amazing about God's love here is not because is, is not the extent of it and, it, and it's not because the world is so big, but it's because the world is so bad. Remember in the Gospel of John, whenever he uses the word world, he's not just talking about a lot of people. The word world has a very specific theological connotation and the, the word world has, is the word cosmos and it has to do with simple humanity that has set itself against God. It is ho- humanity that is hostile to God. Humanity in all of its alienation from God. So when you, when you see that God loved the world, that's what you ought to hear. That Jesus didn't come into some kind of uh, neutral environment in order to sort of find the good people. Right? I think that's what a lot of people think of Christianity. I think that's what a lot of us think about Christianity sometimes. That, that Jesus came into this sort of neutral environment and he just sort of was trying to find the good people and make sure the good people go to church and ultimately those are the ones who are going to go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says at all. What does the Bible say? It says, you know, Romans 5.8, when it talks about God's love, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were what while we were still sinners christ died for us it doesn't say god shows his own love for us in this that he rewards us for all the good things that we do on this earth how we know god loves us is because we don't deserve it how we know god loves us is because he died for us while we were still sinners not when we were good people remember first john 4 8 if i remember it says that that this is love not that we love god but what that He loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins. That the love of God is bound to the cross as well. The love of God is seen to the cross, but the love of God is, is, is evidenced of the cross, but the love of God also is bound to the cross. That is how you know, if you have any question at all, whether or not God loves you. The place you need to go is the cross. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son. And as a result of that, as a result of his love, we do have the mission of the Son. And that's what I'll finish up with this morning. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what is the mission of the Son? And I think this is surprising to some people who are not familiar with the Bible. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I know a lot of people who aren't 
Christians, I think a lot of people think that the reason Jesus came was to condemn them. And I think the reason they think that is because a lot of Christians condemn them. Honestly. Right? Jerem Barr is a pres- uh, professor at Covenant Seminary. He said that, that most non-Christians, the, the average non-Christian thinks that Christians hate them. And did you notice what it says here? It says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He came to, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Now, why, did he, why, why is that the case? The reason that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but, but rather that the world might be saved, was because that the world was already under condemnation. Why does he need to, why does he need to condemn the world when it's already under condemnation? I remember one of my best friends, his mom, was like a mother to me, and she was very conservative and very, you know, she's, the Bible's the Word of God. Tommy, Word of God says, and I, I went to Ethiopia, and they went, they were a part of that trip. And she was very upset with the, pres- the current president. And she said, Tommy! And one of the reasons her family liked it, she, she would ask me questions. and she, she, would, she bought my answers, where she wouldn't buy other people's answers. And she said, Tommy, you think God's judging America? And I said, what do you mean by that? And she gave me all the stuff, and I said, no. I said, he doesn't need to. And she said, why? And I said, well, the Word of God says... That America is already under condemnation. Europe is already under condemnation. China, Russia, all of the peoples, all nations, by nature and by choice, are under condemnation. We are born into that state. If you were born a human, and except for Jesus, you are born needing to be saved. You are born in a state of condemnation. So Jesus doesn't need to come and condemn you. He doesn't condemn you. Why was Jesus able to hang out with with tax collectors and sinners? He didn't condemn them. Because they were already condemned. The thing is, they knew it. Why did Jesus have such a problem with with religious people? Because they were self-righteous. They were self-righteous and they were angry when Jesus basically implied that they needed salvation, that they needed saving. All of them. If you're, if you're a Christian here, you came through that door of condemnation. You, you were born into that state. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. Jesus didn't come to point a finger at you and tell you how bad you are. He knows what is in all men. He knows how bad you are. Jesus didn't come to point a finger at all the wicked things you did, that all the things that you've done in the darkness. Right? Notice what John's commentary at the end, right? That people, people do these deeds in the darkness. Why? They don't want to be seen. And the good news of the Gospel is you let the light of Jesus shine on them and they don't matter anymore. That you are under no condemnation. Remember, Paul, the culmination of, Paul, of Romans says what in chapter 8? It says, there is therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. And the question is, have you trusted Him? Are you willing to trust Him? Would you rather have the condemnation or would you rather have His salvation? In, In other words, 
since Jesus didn't come, he didn't come into a neutral situation to rescue good people. He came into a bad situation to rescue bad people. What Jesus was like, it hit me this morning as I was walking over here. Jesus was like Snake Plissken in Escape from New York. Have you seen Escape from New York? It's one of the greatest movies of all time. It, it, it was made in 1981. It's set in 1997. And in 1997, the whole city of New York has become nothing but a penal colony. They, the, the United States government has put a, tr- a huge wall around the whole city of New York. And every single person in the city of New York by that time is a convicted criminal. And the president of the United States happens to be flying over. His plane crashes in the, in, into it. And Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell has to go rescue the president. And he goes into New York. Everyone in, in that New York is, in, is a criminal. There's no good people in there. Everyone in there needs saving. Everyone in there, but especially the president, of course. And, I don't, spoiler alert, he rescues him. Just like Jesus rescues us. That Jesus came down into the midst of criminals. Jesus came down into the midst of wickedness. Jesus came down not in the midst of neutral people in order to pick out the good ones. But he came into the midst of bad people to save those who would put their faith in him. And that's your choice this morning. I mean, one of the mysteries of the Gospels, on one hand, you must be born again or you can't see the kingdom of the heaven. On the other hand, in order to, to, to experience that new birth, you also have to put your faith in Jesus. And so what's it going to be this morning? Right? All of us are born needing a Savior. And what some of us are going to be saved, some are not saved, and it all relies on whether or not we have believed in the Son of Man. Have you believed in Him? Would you believe in Him? This morning, if you've not trusted Jesus, if you want to talk to someone about it, please, after the service, come talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to one of the deacons who are up there. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that as we come, that those who have been Christians for a long time would be reminded that Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. I pray that those who have been checking out the gospel would, be, would understand that Jesus came to not to condemn them, but to save them. I pray for all of us that we would rejoice in this thing called the gospel, that God, you love the world so much that you sent Jesus, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen.